A universal law can be understood to be an objective, observable, and eternal description of some facet of the universe. As such, they can be independently discovered by disparate societies living within the same universe, as long as both societies are able to observe the same facets of that universe. It may not be known as Newton's law to the Nakamotans, but they will likely have discovered that, quote, every particle attracts every other particle in the universe with a force that is directly proportional to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between their centers. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are getting into, you thought, you thought the Bitcoin Astronomy series was over. But it has, the mantle has been taken up by Buck Purley, and we have a new edition. And this one is, I love this just because this compares it to the situation we have right now to, to fundamentally understand the difference between proof of work and proof of stake and using these scientific, I mean, the, the, the science fiction extrapolation of the principles in proof of work to make sense as to why proof of stake cannot do the job of bridging the gap between civilizations that necessarily cannot trust each other. And we get into it a lot in the guy's take. Um, but there's actually a lot of like really great little snippets and a lot of uh, digital gold in this piece, so to speak. Uh, and it's just fun. It's just fun. I love, uh, you know me, I love the Bitcoin Astronomy series. So if you haven't heard part one, part two, and part three about the first laws, the, the three laws of Bitcoin astronomy, I highly recommend it because this is probably going to be confusing if you don't know where we're coming from. I will have the link right there in the show notes so that you can check all three of them out. But with that, let's hit our sponsors really quick and then jump into the article. First, let's talk about how this is the best time ever to be stacking constantly with swanbitcoin.com slash guy. I do my weekly purchase and anytime I have extra, I dump it into Swan. I use their app, by the way. I'm, I'm not even sure if I've talked about it on the show. They have an app now, so you can just interact, use everything, go through the, uh, the canon and the articles and you know, get all of their incredible resources through the app and then smash by and change your weekly and daily, monthly purchase, whatever you want to do. And of course, don't forget about Pacific Bitcoin. Code GUYS gets you 20% off your tickets. And then when you go, you're going to want to use the Fold card so that you can get sats back on all your stuff and you can get sats back on like your Uber rides and things like when you're, when you're traveling. This is a huge, huge cheat code. You can get gift cards for major merchants with your Fold debit card. And while Fold, while the debit card gives you sats back on literally everything that you purchase, you get more with the gift cards. I use Uber gift cards constantly, both for you know food delivery, but also just particularly for travel and like Airbnb. If you don't have a debit card that pays you sats to use it, then you got to get the Fold card. And then lastly, what you're going to do with all of those sats is you're going to put them on your cold card. You're going to keep them safe. You're going to put them in cold storage, and you're going to go to coinkite.com, 
and you're going to use code Bitcoin Audible to get 5% off everything that you buy, all of your Bitcoin hardware solutions, and you'll get a block clock while you're at it because they're just that awesome, and you will happily use your discount. Again, 5% with code Bitcoin Audible because who doesn't like to get a great deal? That's amazing. And you know where you can find it? In the show notes. All right. Let's get into today's read. A final installment in the Bitcoin Astronomy series, and it's titled Why Proof of Stake Won't Be Used for Intergalactic First Contact A Bitcoin Astronomy Essay by Buck Purley Ethereum's merge to full proof of stake has put the consensus mechanism top of mind for many, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to explore what, to me, was one of the most mind-blowing implications of Dhruv Bansal's prior Bitcoin Astronomy Part 3 piece. Proof-of-stake's subjectivity means it can never scale to an intergalactic, interspecies society. The Hash Horizon's Shadow A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a civilization developed. It was a social society, made up of self-interested individuals who lack, quote, perfect knowledge. No hive mind formics here. Like life in our own galaxy, they evolved in a world with finite resources that demanded competition for survival. This galaxy exists in a universe that follows the same natural laws as our own. Assuming no zones of thought where the rules of relativity can be broken, the same Terran laws of physics must apply. This civilization is known across the cosmos as the Nakamotans. By following three rules of cosmic sociological evolution of civilizations, as laid out in Dhruv Bansal's Bitcoin Astronomy Part 3, a theory for the universality of proof-of-work blockchains can be seen. An evolutionary pattern takes shape whereby this civilization will develop some form of money as a trust-minimizing technology to facilitate economic coordination among disparate communities of self-interested individuals. This will eventually take the form of a blockchain for settling economic activity in a trust-minimized way. And by the laws laid out in Bitcoin Astronomy Parts 1 and 2, this blockchain should be secured by proof-of-work or risk civilizational stagnation and galactic irrelevancy. The Nakamoto blockchain is called Xenocoin, and as Bonsall writes, it is, quote, the largest, most valuable, and lowest time preference blockchain in their civilization. In many ways, it is their civilization. What good is such a monument to technological and economic achievement if it couldn't be used as a tool to spread the glories of the Nakamoto Empire? An interesting implication of the law of hash universality, which first shows not just how but why a proof-of-work blockchain like Bitcoin will be used to establish first contact with an alien civilization, is that we can use the same underlying thesis to show why proof-of-stake cannot be a mechanism in the same way. Proof-of-work is based on the laws of physics. A universal law can be understood to be an objective, observable, and eternal description of some facet of the universe. As such, they can be independently discovered by disparate societies living within the same universe, 
as long as both societies are able to observe the same facets of that universe. It may not be known as Newton's law to the Nakamotans, but they will likely have discovered that every particle attracts every other particle in the universe with a force that is directly proportional to the product of their masses, and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between their centers. Similarly, we can assume that electricity, the number pi, relativity, and any other universal law of nature can be eventually discoverable or taught by any civilization, given sufficient technological advancement and time, because they are all features of our natural universe. They are also prerequisites to so many other innovations required for civilizational and interplanetary expansion. Money and Language as Technology Language and money are similar types of innovation, but social ones. The best monies survived because they could transcend culture, appealing to certain fundamental laws. Precious metals worked as money because any civilization could get access to them, given sufficient resources and technological advancement. You could prove the legitimacy of metal coinage without understanding the language or culture of the party being traded with, i.e., both universal and trust-minimized. Characteristics such as fungibility, divisibility, durability, and portability were universally valuable for any social trading society, without even ever having to express their reasoning. The universal, at the terrestrial scale, value of what was considered good money also created a self-reinforcing process of innovation. The drive to participate and dominate these economies drove advancements across nations in business, shipping, navigation, military, and geology. This cycle perpetuates human flourishing. To scale beyond a barter system requires money. The best money is universally valued. Intra-civilizational competition for access to this money drives innovation. Innovation in turn promotes economic growth. Growth increases the difficulty of competition for access to money. This difficulty increase drives more innovation. Money, like language, is a necessary innovation that must be developed for any civilization that has developed according to the rules of cosmic sociology laid out above. Blockchains, similarly, will arise to allow this money to scale to match advancements in telecommunications, telephones, fax machines, TCPIP, mobile phones. As knowledge becomes more valuable and data transmission more instantaneous, faster and trust-minimized transfer of value becomes an ever-growing imperative. From these patterns of universality, we can start to see how proof-of-work will become the only mechanism that survives as the consensus protocol for any sufficiently advanced spacefaring civilization. In the words of Ethereum founder and lead developer Vitalik Buterin, quote, Proof of work is based on the laws of physics, so you have to work with the world as it is. As such, it is also the case that a proof of work block is the most likely means by which first contact is made with another alien civilization, as I'll explain below. Introducing the Buteranians In the farthest regions of the expansive trading empire of the Nakamotans, 
there is a group that believe that they can improve upon Xenocoin by taking more direct control of the currency. They believe that the perpetual pressure applied by the proof of work that secures their intergalactic economy represents a waste of resources. These are the Buteranians. Rather than incentivize ever more efficient means of harnessing energy, this band of rebels believes such commodities should be preserved, if possible, indefinitely. To them, the laws of the universe represent an impediment to their ambitions of designing a universe that behaves in the way they believe it should. The rules are simply an obstacle, not to overcome, but rather to ignore entirely. The Buteranians want to design a blockchain for a society of like-minded individuals, either with similar goals of resource preservation or trust in the designers of such a system to optimize for the goals they represent. The Buteranian Council of Efficient Resource Allocation and Output Maximization, the BCERAOM, or Bikaram, offers to convert the existing stores of Xenocorn of their collective into a new currency that anyone will be able to verify and whose supply and security will be guaranteed by a system carefully designed to achieve the goals set out by the Council. One of the last Xenocoin blocks mined by the Buteranian system is received by the rest of the Nakamotans participating in the Xenocoin network, and in it is encoded a message sent from the celebrations of their supposed emancipation of their proof-of-work-induced oppression. Quote, Proof of work is based on the laws of physics, so you have to work with the world as it is. Whereas because proof of stake is virtualized in this way, it's basically letting us create a simulated universe that has its own laws of physics. Thus, Xenopos was born. It's hard to know exactly how the civilization of the Buteranians developed over the centuries since their last Xenocoin block transmission. Their new system operates in an economic universe that incentivizes the priorities of their own culture at the expense of the objective laws of physics foundational to the Nakamotan Empire. Interstellar imagery shows a stabilization of population growth and halted interplanetary expansion within their solar system within the following two Xenocoin blocks. Occasional transmissions received from that corner of space, however, show an explosion in virtual experimentation within the subjective universe of their blockchain. New relative blockchains are birthed within their system and die out faster than the Nakamotans put out trading outposts. Nothing in these transmissions reveal much to motivate the re-establishment of trading relations. But like their cousins the Nakamotans, the Buteranians are social and curious. They also believe they have the superior way to structure society. With this familiar drive to make first contact with new civilizations, they have to figure out what kind of message to send. Et tu, Nakamotans? If choosing to send a signal to make first contact, would our two intergalactic civilizations send a cryptographic puzzle, a sonnet by the Nakamotan Shakespeare, or perhaps a non-fungible bored Buteranian? The universality the objective reality of, quote, the world as it is, inherent to the mathematics underlying the puzzle, makes the answer pretty clear. A sonnet would have no subjective reference for a discreetly evolved civilization to grab onto. Quote, 
A rose by any other name only has cultural significance when you know what a rose is or why it matters that it would still smell sweet, whereas cryptography is just math and every technologically advanced society will have math. And what else is a blockchain but a cryptographic puzzle? This is even true for proof-of-stake, where the rules of the cryptographic signatures and one-way hashing functions are based on certain rules of mathematics that should be transferable. A proof-of-work blockchain makes an excellent message to send out for first contact. It tells you a civilization's rough age, the energy that they are harnessing, and more. As illustrated in Bitcoin Astronomy Part 3, proof-of-work helps resolve the Fermi Paradox, by explaining how the absence of proof of life in the universe is simply a reflection of our own society's sluggish progress towards a sufficiently advanced, proof-of-work-secured economic system. From this perspective, we see how deficient proof-of-stake is for the purposes under discussion. With a Xenopos blockchain used for first contact, once the receiving civilization, i.e. humanity receiving Xenopos, has, quote, solved the block and interpreted it, what next? We can't actually do anything with it, nor is our interpretation of much use to the Buteranians. Humanity can demonstrate we understand the network, but we can't participate in it. A, quote, simulated universe is self-evidently not universal. Proof of stake for first contact, at best, tells us about the complexity and hubris of that civilization's imagination. As Fried Toshi Hayamoto might have written in The Fatal Galactic Conceit, quote, The curious task of the proof of stake mechanism designer is to demonstrate to Buteranians how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. This is not super useful to anyone and could even be dangerous. Subscribing to the Dark Forest Theory of the Universe, part of the point of first contact would be to establish the relative danger another civilization poses and determine whether or not a first-strike xenocide might be prudent. A more optimistic option for first contact is to use it for productive means by establishing a profitable trading network with the civilization as quickly as possible. If the potential for future prosperity sufficiently outweighs the risk of intergalactic destruction and the cost of establishing such potential were made sufficiently worthwhile, first contact can be more likely to be used for positive ends as opposed to that envisioned by the Dark Forest. Traders and Merchant Princes One of the first things early human explorers would do when finding foreign societies was to establish trade. Exchange of physical goods was step number one. Coinage quickly followed. Trade was thus the foot in the door to establishing cross-cultural relations. But physical trade does not scale to a galactic level. The gap between exploration, first contact, learning to communicate, and finding some medium of exchange that we could trust would be inefficient at best and dangerous at worst. A star system a hundred light years away would take a hundred years to receive the first message, and another one hundred to respond, not counting time to interpret. If we develop space travel that can travel at one percent the speed of light, then it would take us 10 
thousand years to travel with our goods in tow, and we'll just ignore the issue of time dilation. This is why blockchains as a universal principle of cosmic sociology is so important. These messages, and therefore the very money itself, can travel near the speed of light. In economies where information can be tradable good itself, this makes the amount of time it takes to start participating in an interstellar, cross-civilizational economy shrink by orders of magnitude. Xeno Phone Home What happens when the conduit for first contact is a proof-of-work block? Upon receipt, humanity is able to learn quite a bit on our own, bringing with it the possibility for technological advancement and providing a roadmap to more easily bootstrap trade relations. First, we learn something of the energy required to transmit the message. We learn about their cryptographic capabilities, likely even learning new, more secure techniques for our own use. Their block times tell us about how far their civilization has spread. See the second law of Bitcoin astronomy. And we can even start to piece together some of their language, figuring out the math, the serialization, etc. Some of this is true with the Xeno proof-of-stake block. Only with the proof-of-work Xenocoin block in hand, however, does humanity have everything it needs to immediately participate in the Nakamoden economy, entirely permissionlessly. How this story plays out will depend a lot on where we are as a civilization. But as has already been repeated throughout human history, the drive to participate in the economy of this advanced society would spur a new golden age of innovation. Not least of all, an order of magnitude leap in harnessing energy production, because the first group of humans able to mine a block on the Xenocoin chain would be entitled to the block rewards and transaction fees of the hardest, scarcest money in the known galaxy. Xenopos, on the other hand, would require the coin to be gifted to us for participation, and would further require humanity to trust whatever source of randomness that is dictated by the Buteranians for being chosen as a validator. This would be a, quote, simulated universe, after all, that adheres to whatever subjective laws its creators feel they should be, and thus totally unknown and unknowable to humanity. So what have we learned? 1. We established that blockchains and proof-of-work are universal, independently discoverable characteristics of the universe. 2. It follows from number one that a proof-of-work blockchain is the most efficient and likely means to establish first contact with alien civilizations. 3. Proof-of-work blockchains allow for a mutually beneficial intergalactic cross-civilizational relationship, thus facilitating the advancement of galaxy-spanning Kardashev Type 2.x civilizations. 4. This is only possible with a blockchain that adheres to objective physical laws and is impossible via the subjective virtualized ones in a simulated universe that has its own laws of physics, inherent to proof-of-stake. You don't have to believe in proof-of-work, but the universe does. To ignore this is to risk stagnation at best, tyranny or civilizational collapse at worst. Rarely does civilization advance grow or flourish by adhering only to virtualized, subjective rules that are by definition exclusionary. Tweet from Giacomo Zucca No corners believe in nothing, nihilism. 
Multicoiners believe in everything, gullibility. Bitcoiners believe in something, reason. Vitalik, I don't believe in proof of work. Why should we care? Well, first, because it's fun to think about space and aliens and interstellar travel. But almost as important is that it has implications for Earth-bound life. In the words of the great cosmic sociologist Dhruv Bansal, quote, Proof of stake cannot support interstellar commerce in the future for the exact same reasons it should not support global commerce today. This may not be the first reason to dismiss proof of stake, but it may also be the best reason to do so. As shown, proof of work's universality is what makes it permissionless. How do we imagine an Iranian or Russian under international sanctions might become an equal participant in a blockchain network where the largest holders can easily be legally punished for providing the starting capital for such entities to become a validator? Proof of work simply requires participants to reach sufficient technological advancement to harness the energy and compute power necessary to join. Not only is this the most just system, but such universality is a prerequisite for surviving at the timescales implied when planning for a galaxy-spanning civilization. Special thanks to Dhruv Bansal, whose incredible three-part essay on Bitcoin astronomy was foundational inspiration for this post, and to Phil Geiger for encouraging me to write it and flesh out the ideas further. All right, that wraps up the, what was it called? Why Proof of Stake Won't Be Used for Intergalactic First Contact, a Bitcoin astronomy essay. Um, there's a lot of fun stuff to unpack in this. I don't have a lot of time for a guy's take, but I'm definitely going to try to get one in. So let's hit our sponsor really fast, and then we'll jump back in. Pacific Bitcoin is freaking happening. I am ready, finally, arguably, I hope you are. Um, I have been seeing some last-minute tic- uh, last uh, FOMO ticket buyers so in a couple of different chats, actually. So if you have not gotten yours yet, I highly recommend it. I hope to see you there. Don't forget you can DM me. My Twitter DMs are open, so if you hit me up, let me know if you are going. I'm also at the Guy Swan on Telegram, so you can hit me up there. But you can get 20% off your tickets if you do your last-minute purchasing, don't forget a freaking 20% discount with code GUYS, G-U-Y-S, four letters, 20%. That's 5% per letter. So when you get your ticket, don't forget it. There's going to be Michael Saylor, uh, Alex Epstein, uh, Lynn Alden, Preston Pish, Parker Lewis, Natalie Brunel, uh, Alan Farrington, uh, uh, Brady, uh, Brady Swenson, uh, Jan Pritzker. I mean, literally the, the list of people here that like basically the entire Swan team is going to be there. And they're a huge resource. If you use Swan, but you actually haven't gotten to interact with any of the team, you really need to come out. They are an amazing group by themselves and they're so helpful. They're there to answer all of your questions. But mostly, we're just going to have an absolute blast, and there's going to be tons of happen, tons of things happening, and tons of great speakers. Go to PacificBitcoin.com to check out more. 
You can sign up for your Swan account or go through the uh, you know their blog, their resources to learn all sorts of stuff. Anybody who's listening to this show know I read a lot of stuff by them on the show, and that's not because they're sponsors, because they've got lots of great stuff. I did it before, and I still just do. They're amazing. Go over and check it out at swanbitcoin.com slash guy, and do not forget code GUYS, 20% off on your Pacific Bitcoin tickets. With that, let's jump back in. All right, so I want to start this out with uh, first thanks to Buck for extending this series because I love to nerd out on this stuff. But the the implication of proof of stake, the comparison of these things, I think is actually like like he said t- towards the end there is that yes, it's super fun to you know just talk about alien civilizations and first contact and intergalactic civilization, but what you get at when you start imagining the science fiction of where the principles of the technology can apply when you're talking about a a degree of trust not being possible a a, a such an extreme unfamiliarity as contact with an intelligent foreign alien species like can you can you imagine one that has a larger trust gap when literally total annihilation, potentially total annihilation of our species could be the end result. When you see a trust problem that extreme and you put these two systems in that environment, you realize the potential. You realize the, the long-term consequences of the extreme scenario, of the extreme case. And he ends it really well, too, in that... If you're going to have a galaxy spanning, if you're literally looking out into the future, if you have the lowest of low time preferences and you're and you're trying to create a system that will survive with the species, that will survive with a, a collective uh, uh, civilization of our planet and you want to extend it throughout the solar system and throughout the galaxy, then your system above all needs to be simple. It needs to work on the very few and the most basic of primitives, the most sound, essentially, and it must be universal. The greater you extend your civilization and the greater you, uh, the, the larger social barriers, I mean, think about the social barriers of two different civilizations that are on different sides of a mountain range just because they don't come into contact you know the the essentially the stream of information and the stream of uh, products and cultural exchange across the mountain range is extremely small in comparison to uh, uh, two societies or two countries or whatever that are on flat ground right next to each other. And even that even they can have massive cultural differences. And then think about an ocean. Now start thinking about planets. Start thinking about like an an astronomical, no pun intended, cost to actually have any bridge between these civilizations and that even like internet communication takes 30 minutes, hours, because you're literally somewhere else in the universe and that's the time that it takes for the speed of light to travel from one location to another. That you cannot have a live conversation with somebody on, the, on a different planet. Can you, can you think about how large the cultural gap, the, the trust gap would be between two societies that have such little, such so, so few means to actually verify 
and to um, reliably and in a secure fashion communicate and actually share culture. Like the diversions in culture and like how they lived and uh, take all the other consequences of living on a different planet aside and just put the gap in there. Just, just put the information and time gap and you have vastly different societies. If you do not have a universal money, if you don't don't have something that can be settled trustlessly, then those societies will be at odds with each other. They will just be at war at some point in the future. And there's actually a really great quote from early on, just like right towards the beginning. It says, uh, from this article, it says, an evolutionary pattern takes shape whereby this civilization will develop some form of money as a trust-minimizing technology to facilitate economic coordination amongst disparate communities of self-interested individuals. So this sentence is absolutely packed, but it's got a lot of fun ideas in it, and I think the entire argument can actually be found right here. The problem is so fundamental with proof-of-stake that they're obvious if you understand the problem of trust between unfamiliar persons, unfamiliar societies, and self-interested people or species. The whole point of money, the purpose, the role that it serves in society, is a means to scale cooperation vastly further, vastly greater than what we could accomplish directly with the people that we know and trust. With a barter system and a credit system, where you have to trust the liability of another institution or another person, they can only scale to a certain size. And in fact, a barter system is largely what left us in societies that didn't pass the Dunbar's, uh, Dunbar's number. The relative, you know, 100 to 200, somewhere in that range, uh, number of relationships, uh, common and cross-relationships, and people that are the average person can hold in their head and socially relate to in a meaningful sense at the the number of connections between because you know if if you've got Bob Alice and Charles you know you have Bob has to know their uh, his relationship with Alice um and uh, his relationship with Charles but he also has to understand and know the social dynamic between Alice and Charles so as you, so you're adding more than just another relationship. You're adding, it's an exponential increase in the number of relationships and the ways you have to think about the social interactions, the more people you add to the community. And that's why communities were like, we have this whole era of humanity where we were in tribes and that's roughly the size of tribes is without a common money. And that, that also is specific to um, monetary goods that, lasted large or that were built largely around like collectibles and highly cultural items like seashells and these sorts of things is that you'd have to have extremely strong cultural ties alongside the technological limitation in order for both societies or civilizations whatever you want to call it tribes to common to use a common money more than likely is you would have you know separate divisions of kind of like a loosely created society that's like kind of a larger tribe and they would use kind of the same money but there ultimately is where you see so so many of the failures when they come in contact with a different society like the glass beads of uh of africa 
when the English uh, and the Europeans basically came down to the to the west coast of Africa, the monetary rules were no longer the same. The technolo- the technology of because what was what are seashells in the context of a technology that can easily make seashells or easily make glass beads where they are abundant without the strong cultural ties you've you've lost your universality your universality isn't present it's only present among your culture it's essentially a subjectivism the universal truth was actually that glass beads were a terrible money because the technology was not so advanced that could produce them in mass, like just at an astronomical amount. But a common money, a common money that no one can cheat, that actually behaves as proof of work. And this is something that I think is so lost on, uh, not, not so lost on like a bunch of people, but just the average person and even, even many Bitcoiners, it's, I think the entire purpose, the very purpose of money Separate the idea of proof of work as like a hash function or a cryptographic thing, but think of it purely as a means to prove that you did something valuable, that that you provided something on your half of the equation, that this is a legitimate claim to something of value. That is all money is. That's that's the whole thing of money. That's what gold accomplished. Gold was a proof of work, and thus you can use it for exchange for your work. Because that token itself, by proving the difficulty of acquiring it, you know you're participating in an economy that's participating back with you, that is cooperating with you, that is giving you value. You don't know if they made a car. You don't know if they made a really great movie. You don't know if they fix somebody's cable or they make sandwiches. You have no idea what it is. All you have is the token of value that you, you accept and understand is the proof of work of the other thing they did irrelevant to what it actually was. Money literally is a proof of work that allows you to, do, that allows you to exchange something where you know the community is working with you instead of against you even if you have no idea who the members of that community are. That is an insanely powerful thing. And it's so discounted. You know, people talk about money is the root of all evil. It's like, no, no. Money is the root of civilization. Civilization doesn't exist without it. And if you don't have civilization, you don't even have the prosperity to philosophize about what is evil or good or bad or just or empathetic or anything. You're just subsistence. You're just you know, on your hands and knees, desperately looking for food and killing whatever gets in your way. Proof of work is a fundamental universal in a, in a society that wishes to trade past the capacity of an individual mind, past the, the level of trust in an individual institution or person or group. Proof of stake can't do that because it necessitates that you know some ex- external knowledge about the size or value of the civilization. Like, I can't know your, the proof of stake. Of, like, let's say I understand that, you know, some country or, you know, continent is using Ethereum proof of stake. 
and I can, but I've never been there. I don't know anything about it, but I can look at the, um, uh, the quote unquote, the proof of stake chain and, you know, try to decode or whatever and be like, okay, there's these 30 entities that control almost everything. But what's the value of all of that? What's the value of those 30 things? Well, it's based on the value of that society. But you don't know anything about the society. I just know it's this continent. And so I trust them. I trust and believe that, you know, I, I, I try to get my portion of the value or something. I give them a massive amount of my energy and the things, my, you know, proof of work, my goods and my, my leathers and my computers, whatever it is, to get some of these tokens from this society, and then I go there, finally. I've been doing this for years or whatever, and I'm like, one day I'm going to save up and I'm going to go to this society or whatever. And I go to the society, and it's just blank. There's nothing there. Well, that's totally possible. Because the proof, there's, the proof of stake tells me nothing about that society. The whole thing could have been a scam. They could have just been cheating me the entire time. They have... No cost in the system itself. I'm purely and completely trusting that there is anything of value on the other side of it. Now, if I receive first contact from a distant civilization or another continent or another galaxy that is a block that has a proof of work, a proof of work hash on it, that is equivalent to the entire energy output of our planet, well, I can tell you right now, nobody is going to screw me out of a 100-watt light bulb. They have zero need to screw me out of something of, that I find valuable if they have access to the entire world's output of energy to produce a block. And it immediately tells me the energy-based value, the real-world cost it took to produce it, of the relevant fees, of the payout. I now have a reference to what the token can achieve for me in their society. Now, one thing to consider is that that could still be a minuscule amount in their society. Like, it could be that, you know, there's one building or, you know, one, one small family that can access or produce that amount of value, but it still shows how much value they have in it such that your relevance, such that your comparative trade would still be worth it. It would simply be that that one family happens to have a technological advantage that's so great that they could reproduce everything in our world in an incredibly short amount of time or in the relevant amount of time that, you know, the block was being produced. But it's a universal truth. It's a universal communication tool. There's nothing subjective about the amount of work that goes into it. It's literally provable. Proof of stake has none of that. You don't have any relation to the real world to understand what the value of the stake is. Like, the only way that you even understand that there is value in the stake is if you have an exchange rate and you trust the institution that's providing you an exchange rate. But what is the exchange rate for? Real money. A real proof of work. Or a better proof of work. The system itself, the, the idea of proof of stake is self-referential when it comes to trying to bridge untrusted communities. That is why we say the Ethereum community is so is centralized 
because I think it's fundamentally, it's fundamentally got walls up that it cannot bridge to a new community. They have to come together. Like, essentially, to, to understand and be able to trust the Ethereum system is to trust and be a part of the th Ethereum community. Disparate communities, untrusting communities, cannot at scale and across civilizations and across cultural gaps bridge the trust problem. And the best way to tell that, uh, there's, there's multiple philosophical problems, but I actually think, you know, geeking out on the idea of, you know, alien civilizations and their blockchains has a degree of truth in the principles being used or the principles being applied that do explain the problem, that because it's at such an extreme, you see the fundamental difference and the limitation. Because at the extremes, it might sound ridiculous, but what it does is it simply shows very large and obvious what is normally smaller and less obvious, what's easier to obfuscate away when there are strong cultural and language uh, lingual um, connections between, you, you have a cohesive community, it's very easy to look like something works, to make it look like something works, and then say that it's a trust-minimizing tool when everyone is able to trust each other, when everyone is able to just upgrade all of their nodes to whatever the most recent hard fork is. And this is why I think Bitcoin is fundamentally far more powerful as a technology and far more, far more valuable, has much, has vastly greater utility because of its radical neutrality and because of its universal proof of neutrality. Because that proof of work can be trusted by anyone who simply understands the math. And they are both universal truths. They're both universal primitives that we can operate on in order to bridge our political gaps, in order to bridge our cultural gaps, our lingual gaps. That critical universality is exactly what will allow us to have a global, independent, neutral money against societies and cultures who literally hate each other for every other reason. We talked about this a little bit we talked about this a good bit, actually, in part three, if I remember correctly, in the guy's take. But there's a really great quote in, uh, from this one. It says, quote, A universal law can be understood to be an objective, observable, and eternal description of some facet of the universe. As such, they can be independently discovered by disparate, disparate societies living within the same universe. As long as both societies are able to observe the same facets of that universe, it may not be known as Newton's law to the Nakamotans, but they will likely have discovered that, quote, every particle attracts every other particle in the universe with a force that is directly proportional to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between their centers. And I wanted, this is, this is why in the commentary for part three in the guy's take that I was trying to make it clear or trying to push the understanding that the proof of work is a universal indicator and more specifically that mathematical proof of work would be a brilliant means of creating objective trust between different intelligent species. So we don't really have an example of this like in our on, on our planet 
But I do think we have enough small corollaries with basically previous and historical monies, really, more than anything. But neither have we been smart enough as a species, nor do we have a broadly intelligent species to trade with or converse with that is just not human. But you could argue, like I said, that across different societies and particularly timescales and you know, you know, the societies and civilizations that have gone through industrial revolution, communicating with those that have not yet done that, et cetera, et cetera. But what's, what's funny is that in, you actually have seen this, we've actually seen this as well in certain technologies, which is crazy, that there are historical technologies and innovations and discoveries that have actually happened in disparate places all over the world like at the same time, there were like two or three people in completely different cultures and completely different societies on completely different parts of the planet that within just a few years, sometimes even months of each other, like invented or discovered almost the same thing, essentially. And there are historians who try to make sense of it, who try to say, oh, well, maybe somebody could have taken this and traveled to this location or something and then someone got wind of this and a rumor spread or something and you know it triggered triggered the idea and they just got it from the other person but there's a number of them that have these explanations that are so unbelievably implausible and then there are situations where it's just it's simply not possible the civilizations didn't even have any contact i picked up i can't remember any off the top of my head but i picked up a few of these stories in just Throughout my readings, it's one of those things that you really wish you had, when you, when you think about it again, you really wish you had the exact story that you had. So I went looking just to see what I could find, and this one was just really, really cool. I just found this on uh, Quora. Um, is, uh, so this happened exactly 150 years ago, but this was a four-year-old post. It says, a physicist called Kirchhoff said that you could tell what a star was made of just by looking at the spectrum of light that it emitted. Now, this got all the astronomers excited. They wanted to observe the clouds of gas rising from the sun, solar prominences. The only way they could do that was during a solar eclipse when the rest of the sun's light would be blocked. The next solar eclipse was going to be in 1868. Janssen, a French astronomer, was all prepared for it with his spectroscope and he headed, where else but, to India, Guntar in Andhra Pradesh. Uh, this, this was a site where a total solar total solar eclipse would be visible. He observed mostly superheated hydrogen gas, but along with that, there was also a bright yellow line. It was thought to be sodium, but the wavelength wasn't right. So what was this mysterious thing then? Since it was bright enough, he felt that if he blocked other wavelengths of light, he would be able to see it without waiting for the next eclipse. He thus built an instrument for that spectroheliscope and observed. Unknown to him, 8,000 kilometers away, an English astronomer, Lockyer, was also observing the same thing. He saw the same yellow line, and both of them thought the same thing. It was a new chemical element. What's more, their papers reached the French Academy of Sciences on the exact same day in October of 1868. That element was helium, the second most common element in the universe. It is the gas that makes the balloons go up, and if you inhale, it makes your voice funny. Both of them were jointly recognized for this and received a gold medal with both of their faces on it. 
So if you wanted a really good example, I thought that one was just kind of epic. But I think it gets at the universality of a lot of these, of the, the discoveries, the way to think about things, the, our relationship, you know, the way humanity thinks and the way we biologically perceive patterns is that way because it's what survives in the world because it is a reflection of the world. That's why reason and logic are so important because these are built-in inherent pathways in our brain that say this is what aligns with the universe. This is what aligns, you know, if, if an idea contradicts itself, it can't be true because nothing in the universe contradicts itself. Gravity never just makes an exception. And that's why we can deduce so much about the world. It's why we can actually make these mathematical discoveries that are purely in the realm of math. As long as you have symbols and you can understand the common symbols for that, the ancient Chinese civilization and the ancient Middle Eastern civilization, the ancient South uh, American uh, civilization can all discover the exact same math and come to the same conclusion because these things are testable. These things are true patterns. Like math is actually the language of the universe. It's real and proof of work as a mathematical function based on very few cryptographic primitives, some of the soundest that we have, which may still turn out to be wrong in 100 years or 300 years or whatever. But based on our technological understanding now, We've found cryptographic primitives that allow us to attach real-world energy, something that exists with real cost and real value that cannot be faked, to information, to represent it purely, purely with a piece of information, with a set of numbers. That is a profound thing that has been accomplished. The attachment of, of value and cost in the real world that is verifiable purely to a piece of information. And what's fascinating about that is that it is a universal truth. And that's why I think it's actually not as ridiculous as it might sound to think of an alien civilization developing a proof-of-work blockchain. Because... How else, I mean, obviously in our limited scope, this is the way we did it, but how else do you communicate, how else do you prove the value that, you've, if, that you have created as an individual to another individual that does not know your memories, that does not know your experience, that does not know your value judgments? How would you be able to communicate? How would you have a common medium to prove that you made something of value, which is inherently a subjective thing, that you made something of value to demonstrate it to them without having the thing itself. But I just thought this was a really interesting piece. I mean, I love the Bitcoin Astronomy series, and Buck had a great addition here um, uh, with this piece. I'll have the link in the show notes and the link to his page, um, to his Twitters, so that you can follow him. I thought this was a fun way to kick off the week, though. And I just loved how using the, the completely, like, esoteric, like, just kind of the silly idea of thinking about alien blockchains and stuff actually has so much truth in it. You know, science fiction is fascinating when 
it basically extends the laws of the universe. It extends something that we know about life and touches on or tries to explain a hint of mystery and like takes it into a place that we don't know. You know, that's the beauty of science fiction and fantasy. And it's actually remarkable how many ideas that end up being true or principles or um, like really creative or innovative ways to use things actually are birthed in just storytelling that are in somebody's science fiction tale. And I think in the Bitcoin astronomy series in particular, there's, there's an inherent truth about the nature of proof of work and, you know, extending like I think the law of hash horizons is a real law and, you know, extending these things out and, and seeing how they could play out in this imaginary world or this imaginary universe where, you know, civilizations are colliding and different blockchains are colliding and how do you overcome those differences and how do you overcome the trust gap between such a vast chasm between, you know, two different civilizations and how proof of work is this inherent tie that can pull it all together and inherently this one proof of this article specifically that proof of stake is a subjective reality that doesn't actually tell us the most meaningful thing about bridging that trust gap and thus won't be used for intergalactic first contact all right we'll close that one here i will catch you guys tomorrow thank you so much to the fold card to swan bitcoin and to coinkite for supporting this show and for their amazing products. Do not forget to check them out. They're right there in the show notes, link and discounts, all the goodies. And I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. The most remarkable discovery in all of astronomy is that the stars are made out of atoms of the same kind as those on Earth. Richard Feynman This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.